Parenting is tough. Who agrees with me? You agree with me on that? Anna, you... you Wesley? <laughs> what did I say? What? Oh, <laughs> no, not to single you out. Sorry. Wesley, you agree with that. Parenting is tough. So the reasons parenting is tough, one of the reasons is obedience. Right? Obedience it, that you want to exact from them is not, only the, is not always the kind of obedience they give. <laughs> um, so, if, if I tell Wesley and Elise to clean their rooms, and it takes them two hours, and I have to tell them eight times to clean their room, and they do it halfway, and I come in the room, and there's socks, you know, outside of the drawers, and there's their beds kind of disheveled and unmade, you know. It, it's, it, there's, there's crayons everywhere. There's, you know, they've painted on the walls again or something. That's not cleaning. That's not exactly the kind of obedience that I'm looking for, right? The, and I probably told you this before, the kind of obedience we're looking for as parents is right away, all the way, and with a smile. Right? Right away, all the way, and with a smile. And if they take, if I have to keep repeating to them to do this thing, that's not right away. And if they do it halfway, that's not all the way. And they do, if they do it with a scowl and they're kind of grumpy, that's not with a smile. And that's why they get spankings. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of faith, or that's the kind of faith, that's the kind of obedience that we want as parents. And I've seen such a, an analogy to that with regards to the kind of faith God wants from us. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? But my question today is what, what is the texture of that faith without which it is impossible to please God? I mean, there's, there's a faith of demons, right? And we know that faith doesn't please God. It's just, that kind of faith is comprehending facts about reality. And that's part of faith. Propositional truth is part of faith. And demons know that Christ died for the sins of men and rose again. They know that. But that's not the faith that God requires from us. He wants something more from us. Um, so what is the texture, the tone, the feel of the kind of faith that pleases God? What is it what does it feel like? What does it look like? What exactly is the fullness of Christian faith that God requires from us and that we're looking for and striving for as God's people? Well, I think the passage today in 1 Peter chapter 1 is going to help us answer that question. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue in our series. 1 Peter 1, and I'll read verses 8 through 13. 
What kind of faith pleases God? Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time or person the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask right now that words will be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Please get me and my flesh out of the way. And I ask that you would just flow through me right now and open up all our hearts to receive your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In, the, in this passage, Peter commends these five congregations that he's writing to. And he commends them because of the kind of faith that they have. Though they have not seen Jesus, they love him. And they rejoice, and they believe, and they anticipate the greater reward. And he talks about their future salvation, spoken of by the prophets, and sure to be revealed at the appointed time. Now, I think through this commendation that Peter gives to this, these congregations, we can see the kind of characteristics of a faith that pleases God. So, that's what I'm going to talk about today. What are the characteristics? What's the tone, the feel? What are the characteristics of the kind of faith that pleases God? Now, we all have faith here and this, members of this congregation, we have faith, but what, what, what does that look like? This passage, I believe, helps us answer that question. First of all, jumping right into the passage, we see that the kind of faith, the kind of faith that pleases God, is a faith that, though it does not see, believes. Right in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. This is very interesting. Because Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. Now why would he single them out? Why? Because Peter has seen Jesus. Peter was called by Christ as a fisherman, and he left everything and followed him. Peter 
saw the transfiguration, which was that peculiar event where the glory of Christ was revealed on the mountain. Peter witnessed the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, and he calls himself, in, ver in chapter 5, verse 1, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And also, he refers to himself as an eyewitness of his majesty. And then Peter saw the risen Lord. So it's almost like Peter is writing with compassion upon these congregations. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him and rejoice. So this is an apostle, someone who knew, was discipled by, saw the risen Lord. So, Peter is writing to people, though, who had never seen Christ. They're up in Asia Minor, which was northwest of Israel, a good ways off. They had never seen Jesus Christ. They only received the gospel through the preaching of the word. And yet they believe in Jesus Christ. That's how the Holy Spirit can grip somebody. Even though they had never seen Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has implanted the love of God in the hearts of these people. And they love Him. So, the kind of faith that Peter is commending is a faith that does not see, yet believes. It believes in Christ, though it cannot see Christ. It trusts in the promises of God without even fully knowing what those promises will look like in the end. It lays hold of a kingdom that it cannot touch. That's faith grabs on to realities higher than the material world. So faith, not sight, but faith. And faith alone is what sees ultimate things given to us by Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of faith that is commended in Scripture. A not seeing, though still believing faith. Jonathan preached on 2 Corinthians 4. And I think this is the last verse in this passage in that very good sermon. He preached and encourages, encouraged us with these words. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, that is, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What, it, what it, a peculiar thing to say by the Apostle Paul. As we look to the things that are unseen. How do you look at something that you can't see with your eyes? Well, you don't look at the, them with your eyes. You look at them with faith. So faith has an eyesight of its own. And that's the kind of faith that Jesus approved of, right? At the end of the Gospel of John, it's this not seeing, yet still grasping through faith the realities given to us in Christ. Then Thomas said to Jesus, then Jesus said to Thomas, rather, after he was doubting, and said, I will, not, I will not believe unless I put my hand in his side. 
right? He said to Thomas, put your finger here after appearing to him and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Oh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus, nor any of the other apostles in Scripture, promises us a transfiguration experience where we see the glory of Christ. It does commend, however, a faith that does not see and still believes in the promises and in Jesus Christ. Now, one point of confusion, this is often, and this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, people will, will say, well, see, what you're preaching, Pastor, is, is something that the world has known for a long time, that, you know, Christianity is completely opposed to any kind of logic or reason at all. You're just kind of believing in stuff out of thin air. And I want to just encourage you not to confuse the issue because faith is never opposed to logic or reason it's opposed to sight in the New Testament it's not opposed to logic or reason it's opposed to sight now why is that? because logic or reason lays hold of reality 2 plus 2 is 4 that's a truth right? that's a reality so logic the reason given to us by God, it lays hold of things that are true. Sight, however, only lays hold of true things in the material world. But faith lays hold of things higher than the material world. Right? So, don't, don't think that faith is opposed to reason. It's opposed to sight. Right? And faith and logic both lay hold of what is reality. It's just that logic and reason lay hold of material reality or physical reality, whereas faith lays hold of higher realities, unseen realities, even though they are realities. They are unseen. So... Faith is able to grasp what the eyes cannot see. C.S. Lewis, who is worth quoting in almost every sermon, right? C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christ, as the Lagos, gives coherence to all of reality. He is the one by whom God created the world. The Lagos, which is the source and substance of reason, is actually a person, Jesus Christ. I think, I think it was Mark or, or someone preached on or taught on this in Colossians, that Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Because he is the, the word. Lagos is a, a hard concept to explain because it is that, 
It is that thing that undergirds reality and in which reality consists. It's the organizing principle of what is real, and that is Christ. So, Christ as the Lagos gives coherence to our faith, and by faith, grasping on to Christ, we are able to see everything in terms of and in view of Jesus Christ. So we believe in Christ like we believe in the Son, not because we see Him, but because by Him we see everything else. So, faith does not need to know Christ is reigning, right? Our faith doesn't need to see Christ to know that He's reigning, rather. Faith knows that He's reigning, even though they cannot see Him. Alright, that is one characteristic of the kind of faith that pleases God. Not seeing, but believing. Next, the kind of faith that pleases God also involves a warm and intimate connection with Jesus Christ. What's another adjective? Warmth. Um, a depth, a depth of connection with Jesus Christ. So what I'm what I'm suggesting that the kind of faith that pleases God is not just assent to propositional truths, but it's a heart. There's your heart is knit to Christ, and that pleases God. Listen to what Peter says. He says, "Though you have not seen him, you love him." Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So this, this is talking about a warm connection to Jesus Christ. That's kind of inexpressible and not, not fully graspable even by ourselves. But we're, we have a connection and a heart knit to Jesus Christ. Interestingly... So, that, so when he says you love him, it means more than you just think that he died for your sins and rose again, but your heart is knit to him. He says you believe in him. In the Greek, this is very interesting. Though you have not seen him, you believe in him. The word in the Greek there is believe into him. It's very interesting. So almost, it almost suggests a more intimate kind of faith than just believing about it's you believe into him. One commentator wrote about this. He says, It is followed by the preposition ace, which is into, which prior to the New Testament was never used with this verb, and which carries the surprising nuance of into. Almost as if this personal faith were going into the Lord Jesus Christ and resting or remaining there. So we don't just believe about Jesus Christ. We believe into. That is our faith is going into and then resting on in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's a different nuance there. It's not just a set of truths or traditions or beliefs, but that warm, personal, intimate faith in Jesus Christ is a faith in Him. 
it not just about him, but him. He intercedes for us, right? He knows what it's like to be a man that suffers. And so to believe into him has the nuance of sharing your entire experience with him in a way that he understands, in a way that all of your hope and anticipation is caught up with him and what he said in his promises. You believe into him. Not just about him. So we're placing faith. What we mean by faith is we have faith in a person, Jesus Christ. Not just the propositions, but the person. Ooh, that would have been good if I would have thought about it. That would have been a good Baptist point. Not propositions, but person. If I could rewrite this sermon, I would say that. So, because, you know, Baptist points are always, always have the, they, they're always symmetrical. So, P's or, all right, anyhow. So, we, we don't just believe, we don't just love him, we don't just believe into him, but we rejoice with a unique kind of joy. He says, it is a joy, we, are, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So there's, a, there's an inex... You can't even fully understand your connect, this intimate, warm, joyful connection. It's not fully explainable to you. But I can tell you of a surety that if you tell a, a Christian, we'll deny Jesus Christ. No matter what doubts they're going through, no matter what suffering they're going through, a heart that is knit to Jesus Christ could never let him go. You just couldn't. Even if all reasons to believe were stripped from you, you just couldn't leave your Lord and Savior. Your heart is knit to him. So, the faith, I believe, the kind of faith that Peter is commending, and therefore the kind of faith that pleases God, is a very personal and intimate reliance and hope in Jesus Christ. There's a warmth, there's a personal affection, there's an attachment to Jesus Christ. So it's not just believe about, it's believe in. It's not just belief in propositions, it's belief in a person. Although... Now, don't get it twisted here either. Although propositions are important. You can't believe in Jesus Christ without believing anything about him, right? right. There's always, you know, people always take and run with a wrong idea down and they just fall off the ditch. Yeah, you know, and so faith in Jesus Christ for some become just the propositions alone and then it becomes almost like dead orthodoxy. And belief for some is belief in the person, and they don't know what they believe about the person. <laughs> you know? So, faith in Jesus Christ involves propositions. It needs to actually start with propositions about Christ. Then, 
as you grow, is it according to my experience, which may be yours as well, as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a warmer connection with Him. The propositions become power. They become, they gain steam. The fire grows. It grows warmer. And you could, I could never let Jesus go. So, what great qualities those would be to sow in our church, right? Love, belief, and joy. What qualities of a kingdom people? Why, those are the kind of qualities that might motivate somebody to sing in jail, like Paul and Silas did. They love him, they believe, and they rejoice with a peculiar kind of joy that's inexpressible. So I believe that's a second characteristic. Not just believe in, about, but believe into warmth. The third characteristic of a faith that pleases Jesus, that pleases God, is a faith that magnifies and appreciates the salvation given to us. Magnifies and appreciates the salvation given to us. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time or what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent to heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now I know that's a mouthful Peter gave us there. That, that a lot is happening in, the, in that. He must have a, a quick mind. Because there's a lot of turns in that paragraph. But what Peter is doing with what he is saying is he is showing the congregation how weighty the era in which they live is. We live in a new covenant era in which Christ is now begun to reign. A new covenant era where the fullness of God's promises have been given and revealed. And we're just we're waiting for the culmination of that now. And what Peter is saying is that all the Old Testament has been working up to this point. The prophets who prophesied, they searched and inquired carefully through the Spirit of Christ, indicating when Christ would suffer, Peter says, and when he would be glorified. So according to Peter, listen, listen to Peter's mindset. We talked about this in our theological focus group quite a few times. But in, the, in our men's theological focus group, we've been wrapping our minds around the fact that the Old Testament points to Christ. It leads up to Christ. It culminates in Christ. So, the Old Testament is the finger that points to Jesus Christ. And in this new era of salvation, we have grown up into maturity. Now, if you... If you Take a six-month-old 
and you point at something, what are they going to stare at? Your finger. But in this new era of salvation, in which God's people have reached a certain maturity, we no longer look at the finger, we look at the thing that the finger is pointed to, and that is Jesus Christ, and it's been Christ all along. So, what is Peter talking about when he says that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating and predicted the sufferings and his subsequent glories. What passages might you go to that would indicate the sufferings of Christ? Gary, what, what passage? The Old Testament passages. Well, Old Testament. What, what? Isaiah 53. Great. Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. So there's, there in Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord both represents the people and dies for the people. That would be a great passage to go to that indicates his suffering. Here he also said Psalm 22, my Lord, my Lord, why has thou forsaken me? How about just right at the beginning? Genesis 3.15. The offspring of the woman would crush the head of the snake and his heel would be bruised in the process. And that, that doesn't even get into the events and the figures that foreshadow what Jesus Christ would do, like the blood of the Lamb, like the sacrifice of Abraham, like crossing the Red Sea into the Promised Land, all indicating what Christ would do. What about the subsequent glories? My favorite passage one of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where this shadowy figure, the Son of Man, approaches the Ancient of Days and is given glory and power and majesty and dominion. There's Christ predicting the suffering, the subsequent glories. So, the Old Testament, by and large, the, the direction that it's going in, is Jesus Christ. His death and his subsequent glory, which is his resurrection, ascension, and soon return. And so what Peter is saying is that the Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in the Gospel. And the Old Testament was images and shadows, but the substance is Christ. He is the one that casts the shadow on the Old Testament. And this is what... This is how Jesus taught Peter to understand the Old Testament, right? John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But it's they that bear witness to me. On the two, to the road to Emmaus and Luke, Jesus opened their mind and taught them all things concerning himself in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, as disciples, this is another thing we talked about in the focus group, as disciples of Christ, what we, the way we view the Bible is to adopt the interpretive lens of Jesus and the apostles. How did they understand the Old Testament scripture? And we believe adopting their lens, that Old Testament history and prophecy has been working up to this new covenant era 
and is current, and, and this new covenant era is the era in which we stand, and it is the highest height of what God is doing. And even the angels long to look at it. So the Old Testament and heaven has been waiting for this moment and looks eagerly upon this moment in which we stand. Here's what Jesus said to the, to the disciples in Matthew 13. He said, Many, many longed to see my day, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what they see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear. And did not hear it. But now, in this new covenant era, we have been given these things. We've been given the revelation of Christ. Mark talked about the mystery, which is Christ in you. Dig it. Magnify a kind of faith that pleases God. Magnify. Seeks to magnify and dig in to those realities. We're not, we're, we don't want to just read Colossians and say, well, yeah, you know, in Christ all the treasures of, of mystery are hidden. You know, all wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. Got it. A kind of faith that pleases God wants to feel that. I want to reach out and touch that. What does that mean? That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. They're not in podcasts, not ultimately in books, certainly not in social media, but they're hidden in Christ. One thing you could do, because it only the Lord can reveal these things to you, one thing you could do is not just pray, but tarry with the Lord. Has anyone ever heard that phrase, tarry with the Lord? It's an old phrase, but it represents staying longer with the Lord. Sometimes, you know, in the morning, I'm, it's good to do your devotions. That is a good and blessed thing, because it trains the heart. But tarrying with the Lord requires that you stay longer. Linger. Open up your thoughts and your hearts and your heart to Him. And I can't, I couldn't think of a better way to do that than a prayer than walking, walking um, on a lonesome path in the wood alone for a long time. Tarry with the Lord. Press past the boredom, and then talk to God, and then wait and listen. So, there's another characteristic of faith that pleases God. It's a kind of faith that magnifies, seeks to magnify and appreciate the salvation into which angels long to look. Lastly, the kind of faith that pleases God casts its hope way out into the future, not in this present life. Verse 13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, 
set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That phrase, prepare your, preparing your minds for action, literally reads in the Greek, therefore, gird, girding up the loins of your minds, which refers to a man who would wear a long robe, taking the excess of that robe, tucking it under his belt, so that he can fight or run. So, Christiana J.I. Packer, great English writer, said, uh, Christianity should not be thought of as sitting in a hot tub. It should be thought of as girding up the loins of your minds and preparing yourself to run or fight very often. But what, why? Why? I mean, if Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light, why do I have to tuck my robe in my belt? Well, it's because, as we've said many times, that you've been brought into opposition with the world, with what is untrue, with what is evil, and, it's cut, and the current is going in the other direction. It's not, the, it's not God who makes it hard. It's the world who's after you, very often. So gird up the loins of your minds and be sober-minded. That is, avoid intoxication with the things of the world. That's sober-mindedness. We can become not just intoxicated with wine or bourbon, but we can be intoxicated with the things of the world. We can get intoxicated with our work. We can get intoxicated with entertainment. And then we turn aside to vanity. John Calvin said, For since even the least taste of these things, these worldly things, even the least taste of them stealthily draws us away from God, just a sip of worldliness sometimes can... Have you not experienced this? Gets you down to a rabbit trail. Kind of creates a current in the streams of your heart. For even... For since even the least taste of these things stealthily draws us away from God when one plunges himself into these, he must necessarily become sleepy and stupid, and he forgets God and the things of God. I like those old time authors because they just gave it to you. So gird, prepare for action, Avoid intoxication with the world, and then set your hope fully on the revelation, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, set your hope. Here's my hope. I got a bag of hope. I'm putting it all on Jesus Christ. I'm not cutting it in half, leaving half for the world and putting half on Jesus Christ. I'm taking the whole bag and putting it on Jesus Christ. If I have a great hand in poker terms, I'm going all in on Jesus. I'm not, I'm not trying to win the next round. So, set your hope fully to a complete degree, in other words, or to an entire extent at the revelation. 
of Jesus Christ. Now, I think we believe that in principle, but sometimes we lay so much stress on this life in function. And so what we might assent to, setting your hope fully is not something you do with your mind only. It's something you do with your affections. It's something you do with your heart. Right? That's to set your hope fully at the revelation that will be brought to you, at the grace that will be brought to you, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, place anticipation of joy, in other words, not in some ideal future in your life now. The, the, the house, the, the, the job, you know, the, the American dream. You will come to realize, I believe, the futility of those things in the end. Because you'll never really get there. That's what the world does. It promises and then takes it from you. Promises and takes it from you. I've come across a concept recently called deferred happiness syndrome. Here's what deferred happiness syndrome is. The common feeling that your life hasn't begun, that your present reality is a mere prelude to some idyllic future. This ideal is a mirage that'll fade as you approach old age revealing that the prelude that you rushed through was in fact the one to your death. Now what a sad reality that would be if we were placing our hope in this world. All our, if, we, if we took half that hope, that bag, and put it in this world, then we would always feel half um, like we didn't have it, like we weren't the ideal future didn't arrive, but we place all our hope in some ideal future would just never come. But if you place your hope fully at the revelation of Jesus Christ, well, then your happiness will be deferred, but it will be realized in the end. This, I believe, can be a source of comfort to you if life has not worked out or is not working out the way you want it to. If your plans have not been what you had hoped for, um, it just you, you tried your best, but it's just life is not giving you that ideal future that you've longed for. Well, now is the time to set your hope fully at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now's the time to fully take take that rest of that bag and put it on Jesus Christ and seek devotion to him. Because that future that we long for in this life will never, ever come. But there is a river that makes glad the streams of God. So those are characteristics of faith. It's not seeing but believing. It's not just propositions, but it's, it's believing into a person, loving him, believing in him, hoping in him. It's a faith that magnifies the salvation given to you 
We talk about salvation like it's just another, it's just another word in our vocabulary. We're talking about the salvation of your souls, a kingdom, to use old first century terminology and biblical terminology that will not pass away. Then another characteristic is hope in the future. Faith that places its hope fully at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not being intoxicated with the world because that idyllic future will always be deferred. But set your hope fully at the revelation of Jesus Christ. La last thing I want to say here is this is how we participate in Christ. Do you know the Christian life is about participation in Jesus Christ? That's why Paul says, when you were baptized, you died with him. And you were raised to walk in the newness of life. And so we often think of union with Christ in this church. I praise God for that, because that's the essence of what a Christian is, someone united to Christ. But also, too, dying with Christ, rising with Christ, but then also having the faith that Christ had is the way we participate with him. Setting our hope on things yet unseen is the very path that Christ paved for us. Listen to what Hebrews says, 12, 1 through 2. Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which are all those people in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So to participate in the kind of faith that Jesus had would to, for the joy set before you, which you cannot see fully, and which you will not get here, endures the difficulties and the trials, despises the shame, and takes all of your hope and throws it on the person of Jesus Christ. So, congregation, brothers and sisters, don't just continue to believe, but continue to shape your faith into the kind of faith. Stoke the flames of your faith so that your eyes love that it cannot, what it cannot see. So that you love and trust the person of Jesus Christ more. So you magnify your salvation. And you anticipate with greater, greater eagerness the reward laid up for you. Don't just continue in the faith. Deepen in your faith. And, and that grace will be brought to us one day very soon, we trust. Let's close.